welcome to Blooming Out, Indiana's only LGBTQ plus news and public affairs show featuring music, events, and interviews, both local and global. From the WFHB studios in Bloomington, Indiana, this is Blooming Out. Welcome to Blooming Out, Indiana's only LGBTQI program, focusing on the issues facing the queer community. For today's episode, we will be listening to two pieces from Out of Bounds, a weekly radio show from Ithaca, New York. In the first piece, we'll hear from Out of Bounds producer Tish Perlman as she interviews transgender activist Josie Zanfordino. Welcome to Out of Bounds. I'm Tish Perlman. My guest is Josie Zanfordino. Zanfordino is a transgender woman and a speech language therapist. She has a master's in speech language pathology from SUNY Geneseo. She spent four years as a supervisor of the Transgender Voice and Communications Clinic at Ithaca College. In 2014, she developed a telepractice service called Say It Proud Speech Therapy, which includes the Finishing Touch Voice Training Program, personalized voice training for transgender people. In today's interview, we will talk to Josie about her lifelong journey as a transgender woman and her innovative speech therapy programs. And welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Tish. It's great to be here with you today. Now, I, you, you said that you knew from about the age of four years old that you were different, that, that you were different than other boys, and you felt awkward. To tell us a little bit about that feeling. Sure. So the natural inclination at an early age was to be with the girls and to be in on all the girls things right from the get-go, which was very, very pleasing to me, and I'm not sure that my parents even noticed, but when I was in kindergarten at the age of four, going on five, I wanted to play with the girls, and there was a bully in the class who bothered me about that, So, so we fought, and I still continued to hang out with the girls, so it's that sense of myself as a human being, being inside a situation that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I didn't want to do the boys' things. I wanted to play jacks, jump rope, play tillywinks and hopscotch and roller skate. How did your parents react to this? Because, I mean, that that would be called a tomboy, right? I mean, in some ways. Yeah. If if you were a girl, but, I mean, it's, it's kind of tomboyish stuff that you wanted to do anyway, right? Well, my parents were vastly preoccupied with three other children. Mm. Um, my mom and dad had my younger sister, Nan, and Robert and Ellen, my brother and sister, who were twins. So by the time I was five going on six, Nan was on the picture, and she was a sickly child. So a lot of attention went there. And I was I was a basically a good kid, so I never got into trouble except when I did, and it was just like I'm just carrying through, with doing my stuff. Uh-huh. I but, didn't fit in as a boy. When I looked at the rough and tumble games that boys wanted to play, it was not attractive to me. You know, my dad was trying to get me to play catch, when I was five, and I wasn't interested at all. I wanted to play you know, like drama games with Uh relatives so I could get into the interactions with them. So there was a a parting of the ways there. My my dad was a very great man and very set in his ways. Um, As as context, my, my parents were immigrant children's parents. They grew up in the Depression. Uh-huh. And so yeah. they didn't have a context for anything out of the norm. Exactly. And we loved tremendously. Yeah. And then you also said that you were brought up as a Roman Catholic. So and there's that whole issue embedded in there, too, about conformity and sure. tradition. And, yeah. Sure. Um, to be Roman Catholic in the 1950s uh, in churches like our Lady of Pity in the <laughs> yeah. South Bronx, yeah. an Italian parish. It, so, so that was repressive no matter what you were feeling, right? I mean, in, in some ways. It's just the, the, the pressure to, to conform is something I've struggled with my entire life. Um, 
I can't explain enough how much my my feelings got pushed underground, and I learned at a very early age that whatever it is that I'm feeling is not safe. Yeah. And that I better be careful about how I am. So I'm this little kid, and I'm, I don't have a language for what I'm going through. Nothing, nothing at all came across my attention until Christine Jorgensen, another Bronx girl from 1957. Yeah. You know, she's a he, he's a she, came out in the New York Daily News when it was three cents. And yeah. you look at this, and it was like, oh, my gosh, somewhere in the deep recesses of my mind, this is possible that a person could transition. So from a very early age, Christine Jorgensen and much later Renee Richards. Oh, yeah. Well, what about Jan Morris? And that was the first person that I ever got um, in touch with in, in regard to that, that kind of a, a new life. Didn't know anything at all about Jan Morris until I started tr- tr- to transition much later in life. Ah, yeah. I didn't know. I didn't yeah. Know. So, so a role model, you, you know, everybody needs role models. We all know that now, how important role models are. So that's that kind of rang a bell for you, right? That, that you weren't just feeling you couldn't fit in with the boys, but you really weren't a boy. At the time, Tish, I just didn't have a conversation. I didn't have a language about it. So I attempted through most of my life to do things that boys did with <laughs> very little success. <laughs> I wasn't good at sports. I wasn't very competitive. And I was mostly interested in getting into conversations with people to figure out how they're negotiating life. And that was, oh my goodness, that was 50 years ago yeah. now. And, and you also said that you, you had periods where you started cross-dressing, too, dressing up as a, yeah. as a woman or a girl. Yeah. And so, and, and so how, how did that feel to you, though? Were you, were you feeling like you were living more authentically? Inside a locked bathroom. <laughs> Cross-dressing and staying inside a locked bathroom. Ah, so you never went public with it. No, oh. I, was, I was terrified of, of exposing this. So I kept it, uh, I kept it highly secret. Uh-huh. Kept it secret from my parents, from my sisters, from other people in the family. You know, it was tough growing up inside a, a paradigm of shame and guilt and you're supposed to do a certain thing, and you're supposed to be a certain way, and you're supposed to pray to God and go to Mass every day yeah. and do these Catholic things because this is what we do here. And so it was difficult to do anything but that. Yeah, you must have been paralyzed, too, I was in, paralyzed. in some ways, yeah. And, you know, and, and then that was the era when the, the, there were all kinds of psychiatry, you know, theories that you could change people with therapies and, you know, shock oh. treatments and, you know, I mean, all that stuff. Sure. I've had gay and lesbian people on, of course, and, and they've talked about how, how that was, you know, threatened in their lives. Did you, did you fear that, too? I did. I've, I came close to going into psychotherapy when I was 18, and uh, a Christian brother friend of mine, who I think is probably gay, told me that it would be a good idea for me to go to, into psychotherapy because at 17 or 18, I was really feeling rather depressed. And what stopped me was what stopped me was a um, a scarcity conversation I was in. Psychotherapy was expensive. We didn't have a lot of money. I couldn't admit to my parents that I was upset or about, about anything. They were vastly preoccupied with their own lives and, mm. and difficulties with my, with my sisters and my brother. And so I just hunkered down. Wow, that's, what, what an amazing story. Now, now Josie, to tell us, so, so at 48, you said you had to have open-heart surgery, and that's when you decided you had to do something, you had to transition. Yes. Tell us that story. Tell us sure. what finally made you decide you did need to make a move. What I want to explain is that, just a little bit here, that I was, the, the prelude to that was I was, again, trying to do a guy thing. And I was in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania with my dear late friend, Ralph Hill. And we were touring the battlefield for the 135th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg. Mm-hmm. And at Gettysburg National Battlefield, there were towers, tall towers there that you could look over the whole landscape. And Ralph is just powering, powering up these things. And I'm at the second flight and I'm exhausted. Mm. And he was heavier than I was. And I said, what's up with this? So they came into town. I've been getting medical care all along, and my my really great doctor, Neil Shalish at Family Medicine, said, you know, you might as well go to see Dr. Michael Goodfriend. He was a cardiologist in those days. 
And so he did his test and then he called me back into his room and said, you know, they're doing great things with heart surgery these days. And I said, what? What do you mean? And he says, let me show you what is happening inside you. So I don't mind sharing that the posterior leaflets of my mitral valve had ruptured and my heart was just fluttering around, fluttering around in there. So because I have medical people in my family, we got a second opinion. And sure enough, um, if you're going to continue living, you better get this heart issue repaired. At the time, I didn't have any good idea about what was happening, except that I'm broken and I need to take three months off from a job that I love and doing speech therapy here in town. And it was a period of great reflection for yeah, me. Yeah, all bad. And so out of that, out of that experience of figuring out at a deeper level who I am, I recognized that there were two major needs in my life. I needed to become a parent and I needed to transition. I can't explain the voice inside my head that was just screaming at me very loudly, get on with it, get on with it, get on with it. This is your life now, and you can't deny this any longer. So in the period of reflection, I'm looking at, what are you listening to? You're listening to women's music. When you listen to women's music, you're crying. When you're out there with with your friends, who are the conversations that you're naturally attracted to? You're out there with women. So brilliant therapist, Dr. Joanne Zager here in town, just saved my life. And she says, you know, there's a... There's an androgynous quality about you. Let's take a deeper look at that. And then it was in an instant when I got that voice that said to me, you've got to get on with this and you've got to get on with this now. Mm. And the process of giving up my shame and giving up that there's something wrong with me that needed to be fixed. I I was okay all the time. I just didn't know it. Mm -hmm. I was so deeply hurting, deeply ashamed. So, so, so you, you got on with it, which means what? You start started, taking hormones? Well, and... the hormones didn't come until about... I'm a late bloomer by any stretch. A lot of people I'm, are. A lot I'm of people seven are. Years, seven years after that, I'm finally emotionally stable enough to be able to say, look, uh, it's time to start taking hormones. Mm. In the meantime, I'm starting to f- make time with transgender people around here. So God bless them. I met Janice Carson, who was leading a group called Southern Tier Gals at the time. Mm. So I went walking into PhD environments down on West State Street and go walking into a group of people that looked a lot like me. Wow, that must have been a, a miracle I moment. I was floored. There was a room full of trans women that looked a lot like me. And I said, oh my goodness, this must be the place. Yeah, And so that discovery and then claiming the courage to start buying clothes again, um, God bless <laughs> Gemma Macera, who's oh, yeah. yeah, and she guided me through the, the Unitarian Universalist uh, garage sale. That was where I got my first set of women's clothes that I didn't purge. <laughs> Uh-huh. Oh, that's... that's So, to tell us, I mean, we, we don't have a, a lot of time to tell your entire life story, but so, to tell us, tell us what, what, it, what it was like to, to dress as a woman, and, and finally, I, I suppose you could say you finally felt yourself. It was a very empowering experience for me to be on that path of being self-actualized. Yeah, and so, so so you were able to walk down the street as you knew you really were, right? Yeah. Oh, that must yeah. have been amazing. It's... If you're just joining us, my guest is Josie Zanfordino. We're talking about her trans her tra- transgender transition that that she's been going through all of her life, and 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 she's here sharing it with us. Um, to tell us, tell us how, what it did to your spirit and your head, though. I mean, obviously, you didn't really change that much, right? No, but no, but but, I didn't. but your own self concept and and your feeling in the world did, right? Yeah, and. I'm really glad that you brought up about spirit, because when I think about it, this is what sustained me all of these years. Um, there's a, a poem that I've gotten very close to in recent years. It's by a, um, a 14th century um, Sufi mystic by the name Hafiz. Mm-hmm. And to paraphrase it, um, the poem is, we should talk about this problem uh, there's someone deep inside of you who's hiding and I have fallen in love with. 
And I give all these gifts at your doorstep, and still, my dear, you don't come out. And so, my dear, I'll wait patiently for you, and we should talk about this problem. Otherwise, I'm never going to leave you alone. (laughs) And so when I read that in the context of coming out, I recognized how profoundly God loves me, and that led me to... My faith community, gorgeous people at First Baptist Church. It's an American Baptist church. Uh And so uh, sustained a lot by music, my music, and by the... um, the folk at uh, church and wow! It's, oh, what, what an amazing story this is. So, so, so obviously, <laughs> Josie, the, you 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 found yourself. You you found some peace in the world, but you also have a world that's coming at you, that's homophobic, afraid of this issue. I mean, it's getting better now. People questioning you, people wondering, you know, to, to, to be devil's advocate, what you are, you know. I mean, we've heard all the prejudices all of us have. Right. How, how have you dealt with that aspect of it? I, I, I know it can't be easy. Oh, I beg to differ with you. Really? For me, it's very easy. I look upon the world with compassion. Ah. And when I look upon the world with compassion and with a certain knowledge that I don't know anybody's journey but my own. And so when I see somebody criticizing me Mm. or criticizing transgender people, I say, how could they know? And so then I deal with that compassionately. So then inside that context, I can educate where I can educate and stay away where I'm not welcome. Yeah, and And, then feel safe. And feel safe. Yeah. Um, but it's very empowering to me not to make anybody wrong anymore. Yeah. So I don't. Oh, that's that's a really in- interesting way of s- surviving in many ways, you know? I mean, and and living and, too. And to, to know that they just don't understand and they're afraid and I mean, that's the kind of compassion I have for for that kind of person who's who it's really based on fear a lot of it. Absolutely. And I think that we're living in a fear-based society. And and people are naturally very, very concerned about what's going to happen and all of these types of things. Mm-hmm. And I say, I got what I got, and I don't got what I don't got. <laughs> and when I can say that, then I can look at, oh, so Josie, what are you going to create today? This may be your last day on the planet. What, are you, what goodness are you going to create? So I found myself a context to operate in now, surrounded by people who love me, and I'm safe to go and do that and to bring a healthy conversation to my birth family that still doesn't understand and would rather just the whole thing just go away. And so still, I'm compassionate for them because I don't know the forces that have shaped their lives. Yeah. You know what? That's the old adage that, that you have come upon, that when, when you feel safe and happy and loved inside yourself, you can, you can take on the world in a different way. It's yes. such a great thing. Now, I, I do. We, we must talk about the, the uh, transgender voice work that you do. Oh, Tell me you. what that means, that, that people need voice training. Tell me about that. Transgender men, sometimes, but mostly transgender women, are not helped with their voices with the hormone therapy that they take. Mm. And there are two basic problems. The first problem is is that they don't feel authentic inside themselves for the voice that they're using when they're talking in a low register. That's one problem. Mm. Another problem is, is that they're wanting to have to play a higher game in life, career-wise, but when they go and speak in a job interview, it's not congruent. They're not congruent. And so what do we do? We take our training in speech language as a speech-language pathologist, and I apply the concepts that I've learned about getting the voice out of the chest and into the head and how to do that safely. So People come to the clinic, which I'm so proud of. Oh, yeah. And they get training um, in how to change their voice safely.
You know what? Almost everybody I meet needs voice training. You, mm. you know how people talk nowadays? Uh-huh. They hesitate and, and like, and, you know, they, they insert all these crazy words because they can't think very clearly. Sure. You know? well, yeah. It's, it's about the thinking around who we are that is, is difficult to, to be inside a self-inquiry is difficult because you're having to look at yourself and question yourself and that's that's why we have therapy because we can we can afford a person an ear for hey i know something about what you're going through here that can bring them forward so so did you did you have to essentially change your voice too and, I and learn a different way of even phrasing probably um, huh? i have been working on my voice for the better part of 12 years now and my, vo- my the voice that I'm using is my voice, and I'm happy with it. And I can't do anything much more about it. You know, I'm in my late 60s at this point, uh-huh. and so the elasticity and the pliability of my cords and my vocal system, even though I'm healthy, is what it is. Yeah, well, and, and 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 so like a male to female transsexual, I mean, um, trans person is is coming to you usually with a deep voice, right? Yeah, so are, are you trying talking. to change Excuse that or, or, the, or, or just the way that, you know, a lot of men are really assertive and they take over the... Are, they, are you just trying to change sure. actually the way people behave too with the voice training? Um, usually the people that are coming to clinic are already on some kind of hormone therapy. And once you start hormone therapy as a transsexual, uh, especially the estrogens, you develop a a very quick feeling of, of, of calmness and a feeling of, oh, my goodness, um, this is, I speak for myself, it, mm-hmm. it it landed the very first time I took estrogen 10 years ago, and it occurred as calm. And also, there's this sense of your, your things about your brain change. Mm-hmm. I, I saw as a man the disquiet that I had by being compartmentalized in everything. Uh, there was a there was a part for work. There was a part for relationship. All of this was very neatly stored, and it was pulling me apart. Now, as as a woman, <clears throat> life is a lot more. Um, my whole brain is on fire. It's more integrated. It's very integrated and very process-oriented. So we work very closely with psychotherapists who are seeing the trans person. We do some counseling, but we're guiding a person not just, oh, you're moving your voice out of your chest and into your head, but there's a psychological correlate with that. I'll that bet, person's yeah. like, is this my voice now? Maybe we're going to continue to, to probe it out so that you find something that really works for you that's natural and genuine yeah, for you. Because it's, your, it's yourself that, that you present the world to, and so you're oh, looking yes. for an authentic voice. Yes, that's that, right. I, that makes sense to me, yeah. Sure. That's, God, that's, that's really interesting. Now, I, I want to ask you this. You've been going through this all your life, right? I mean, yeah. had, ha, has the world changed in, changed in such ways that you would never have imagined right now? I mean, we've got Caitlyn Jenner. We've got TV shows ab- about trans people. We've got so much more acceptance. Are you amazed? I'm absolutely floored. You know, um, when I started the trans clinic at Ithaca College, we were one of perhaps five trans clinics at a college level in the entire country. Wow. Now there are 20 hmm. spreading all across America. And then when you have um, a celebrity come out like Caitlyn Jenner did or Laverne Cox uh-huh. or... Um, Famous writer Jennifer Finney Boylan yeah, in her, yep. her brilliant book. She's I know her. Life yep. of Two Genders. Yep. Oh my goodness! So then, all of a sudden, the world starts to open up. But the great, great discovery is what Al Gore gave us with the internet, because the internet <laughs> opened up all the doors, and then you could start to find questions answered by going there. Yeah. Are, are there support groups here for people uh-huh. that, that, that they can... Yeah, I think it's really rather rich. Um, there's a wonderful uh, support group that uh, our local Planned Parenthood uh, does. Ah. At, uh, it's called Out for Health. It's a creation of, uh, of a dear friend, Maureen Kelly. Out oh, yes. There, and she created that. And so then that's one group. And then there's another group that meets at um, 
here in town. It's more for the local area uh, called um, Ithaca Transition Group or something. And then there's another group that just formed at Cornell called Transitioning at Cornell. Gorgeous group of young trans men and trans women who are advocating for more transgender rights at Cornell University. Oh, that is, so, oh that's so great how, well, how much has opened up. It's amazing. Yes. Now, yeah. now we, we don't have that much time. Left. Can, can you tell me what you would say to someone who says, I don't understand what you guys are doing? To, to tell us where we are now. I mean, I, I, you guys must have some talking points that you can give people who really, really don't understand. I would put the question back on them to say, when there was a point in time in your life, have you ever had a point in time where something came up for you about you that really quite surprised you, and all of a sudden it had a profound impact on you that you got your life to change, whether it was changing a major or changing a relationship? Do you ever have a major life change happen like that for you? And usually the person says yes, because everybody goes through that. And then I say, imagine what it's like for a person to live every single day on the planet, having this gnawing question go around and around and around your head without resolution, without how do I find a common denominator for myself for the limited amount of time that I'm on the planet? And so do I choose a life of being dead or being dead inside or literally dead? Or do I choose to claim the courage to do the life that I know I'm needing to do for however much time I'm granted. And sometimes that occurs. Sometimes, the, sometimes it's that I'm so generous with people. So <laughs> uh -huh. when I'm being screamed at by my younger sister that the, that the president is evil, I say I recognize how incredibly difficult it is for her to have that type of conversation going on. And so I'll say to her, I can see that you're upset and that this has got some questions for you that are really hurting you. Did I, did I get that right? So attempting to relate and attempting to be in somebody else's shoes to tell me, well, what, what is this experience like for you? Sometimes that helps. Yeah, and, and what do you need to make that experience better to resolve it? Yeah. That's the, that's the question how, that I How is it too. that you can, you know, say that, you know, you're a member of my family and you disdain me? How is that when yeah. all I've given you is kindness and I've given you this, this gift that I'm finally living the life that I know I need to live? Yeah. And yeah. sometimes they can be reflective about that or sometimes they say, well, all right, just go ahead and do what you want to do, but I'm not going to bother you about it anymore. And I say, okay, I got that. And that works for you? And they say to me, yes, that works for me. And I say, bingo, that's all we can do. Yeah. Is yeah. be for ourselves. Yeah, that, that Shakespeare makes sense. Shakespeare said, you know, to thine own self, be true. So if it applies to me, it's got to apply to 7 billion other people on planet Earth. Exactly, exactly. Um, can, can you give some contact information? We are, we are out of time. Um, oh. People can get in touch with you. And, and say the name of your, your, your voice organization again. Thank you. I'm called Say It Proud Speech Therapy. And I am Josie at SayItProudSpeechTherapy.com. And my program is the Finishing Touch Voice Training Program. I do it online with transgender people all across New York and Florida. That's great. Well, Josie Zanfordino, thank you so much for joining us. Thank You're you for sharing this story. And thank you for educating all of us and, and continuing your life in such, a, in, in such an honorable manner. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Tish. It's a pleasure to meet you. Our audio producer is Nate Richardson at Rep Studio in Ithaca, New York. Our theme music was composed by Diego Vega. And we are a sponsored project of the New York Foundation for the Arts. Tax-deductible donations are welcome at artspire.org. That's A-R-T-S-P-I-R-E dot org. And visit us online at outofboundsradioshow.com. I'm Tish Perlman. We'll be back next week.
You just heard an interview with transgender activist Josie Zanfordino from Out of Bounds here on Blooming Out. This is listener-supported WFHB, Bloomington, Bedford, Ellettsville, and Nashville, community radio for South Central Indiana, and online at wfhb.org. Now it's time for the weather. Right now it's 74 degrees Fahrenheit in Bloomington. Tonight the low is going to get around 60. There's going to be quite a bit of fog tomorrow morning with a high of 80 on Friday and a low of 60 Friday night. This weekend is going to be nice and sunny with highs in the mid-80s and lows in the 60s overnight. In this next piece, Out of Bounds producer Tish Perlman interviews author Rich Savin-Williams. Savin-Williams is a professor emeritus in developmental psychology at Cornell University. He is also a licensed clinical psychologist and has served as an expert witness on same-sex marriage and gay adoption cases. He is the author of eight books on adolescent development. In his most recent book, just released this fall, Becoming Who I Am, Young Men on Being Gay. It's the focus of Perlman's discussion, so here it is. Welcome to Out of Bounds. I'm Tish Perlman. My guest is Rich Savin-Williams. Savin-Williams is a professor emeritus in developmental psychology at Cornell University. He is also a licensed clinical psychologist and has served as an expert witness on same-sex marriage, gay adoption, and Boy Scout court cases. He is author of eight books on adolescent development, including his groundbreaking 2005 book, The New Gay Teenager, which we covered in an earlier interview. His most recent book, just released this fall, is called Becoming Who I Am, Young Men on Being Gay, and it was published by Harvard University Press. And welcome back. Glad to be here. Now, this new book, Becoming Who I Am, seems to underline a more complex world than the old world that you you chronicled in, in The New Gay Teenager. But the kids seem to be on still the same trajectory of a pretty positive life. Are you surprised by this? I'm not at all surprised. I think that um, over the years we have tended to emphasize the pathology almost of gay youth, and that was one reason why I uh, published the 2005 book was to try to correct that. But that's been a decade ago, Mm -hmm. and so I began to wonder, like, what is life like for today's gay youth? And so I decided I needed to ask, and I needed But you, you, you went to different people, though, right? You didn't go to the same kids that you interviewed. Oh, no, these are very, very different. They're 18, 19, 20, 21-year-olds. Yeah. And my idea was to find out what is life like now, now that the, they're living in a much more positive culture, things have happened for them. And so this was my attempt to... You know, I read the literature, the research, and that's helpful. And this book does try to summarize some of those basic ideas. But I also wanted to listen to the youth themselves to see what life is like. Yeah, and, and you, so you interviewed 40 young men yes. in their teens up to about the age of 20. Yes. And, you know, in most cases, it seems like they're leading very positive out lives and, you know, not hidden, ashamed like in the past generations, which to me is quite remarkable. Even yeah. in schools, you know? Yes, it's, it's sort of when I look back on my own growing up years, this is radically different. And I think that it seems to me over the years that after, especially after the new gay teenager came out, that I began receiving emails from kids who would say, you know, thank you for telling a different kind of a story because we've heard about and we've read about the suicidality, the depression, the anxiety, the homelessness, the drug abuse. And they said, this doesn't fit our lives. You know, we understand that these kids exist. But how typical is this of our generation? And they were basically 
saying, no, that's the aberration almost. Mm -hmm. And that what we want to have told are our real stories. Like, what is today growing up gay? And so that's when I decided, okay, I need to stop the research for a while and let um, them speak. And, let them speak. Yeah. and so this is what I did, interviews usually lasting at least an hour, sometimes two hours, and then just had a series of questions about their lives. And you, you know what I found very helpful in this book, too? It was your narrative, you know, filling in some of the history, some of the stereotypes and all the stuff that we're trying to eradicate. Mm -hmm. Now, it's still a mystery why some people are gay. We, we still don't really know, but we are eradicating the controlling mother and the absent father and mm -hmm. the abuse from the uncle, right? I mean, talk to us a little bit about that. Absolutely. In fact, there's one chapter called Why Am I Gay? Because that's a question that um, I get. And um, some of these guys at some point in their life, they did think of that. And then they began understanding, well, it's probably genetics or it's probably something in the prenatal environment, hormones or whatever. Um, but it appeared to me that after a while, the reaction of them was, I really don't care. You know, I am who I am and how I got this way. It's kind of interesting, you know, like a head game. But in reality, it doesn't really matter. And they think pretty much if it matters to other people, then those people are on the wrong track. It, it doesn't matter how I got this way. It's just me. I'm just yeah. normal. I'm just the way anyone else is. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people use that as a political issue so that they can build on it in, in some way. You, you know what? We know the world has changed so much when Exodus International closed its door after 30 years. People might know that, but they're the religious group who, who tried to convert gays in, in, into being straight. And the president even apologized. Yes. That's how different the world is. Yes. And I think a lot of these attempts to convert gay youth to straightness, um, they still exist. I'm not saying they don't exist, but mm -hmm. I think that most people are beginning to say that's not going to happen, and even if it could happen, where's the evidence that it is a good thing outside of some right-wing you know, ideology, uh, religious often? So I think that a lot of the young men I interviewed had never attempted conversion therapy. They never wanted to. No one ever really pressured them mm -hmm. into doing it. And so they just thought, well, that's kind of a weird thing that those religious nuts are attempting to do. Yeah, yeah. Adding abuse onto <laughs> what are now pretty normal lives, it seems, which I was so thrilled to see this. Mm -hmm. now, but there are still some taboos. I mean, you talk about how very young boys still have a hard time discussing crushes on other boys. Mm -hmm. To talk to us about the, the, the little, smaller kids. Right. So one of the things I was interested in is because I'm a developmental psychologist, I want to know sort of developmentally what were the important milestones in their life um, and how did they think about how they negotiate that and so a lot of them do recall when you ask them and which we almost never do like what is your earliest sexual memory and a lot of them could recall sort of crushes on other boys or maybe some level of sex play or being aroused and they didn't understand it at the time mm -hmm. but they just felt natural it just felt normal but then as they got older, then they began to understand that that might not be so normal or so typical or even desirable. So clearly there are messages that are still being delivered, I think especially to young boys um, prior to puberty, that um, we still don't believe that they are pre-gays. We somehow think of them as just being just um, almost sex neutral, if you will. Yeah, yeah. But the but the stories belie that. I mean, all of these guys could remember same sex sexuality or romantic ideas or fantasies from a very early age, long before puberty. So clearly, sexual orientation doesn't begin at puberty, but is there. And I think we're still, as a culture, extraordinarily hesitant to even entertain the possibility that kids can be something other than heterosexual when they are young. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we all, all of us have heard that thing, they'll grow out of it, about any kind of behavior that whoever is in charge doesn't like, right? Mm -hmm. Now, you also found that about half the, the young men you interviewed had girl crushes. But it wasn't the same to them. They could tell there was something missing, right? Absolutely. They, um, some of them had girl crushes because they really liked a girl. And what they thought was that whatever they were feeling was equivalent to what straight boys were feeling towards girls. 
But once they recognize their boy crushes, they really begin to realize there's an emotionality about the boy crushes. There's something that just grabs them in a way that um, the girl crushes didn't, though they loved the girls. I mean, they loved spending time with them. And it also, for those who were troubled by their sexuality, clearly it, cover, it served as a cover if you will, yeah. because how could he be gay if he if he and Katie are so cute together? Yeah, yeah. But I think he I think he hit the nail on the head though. It, it has to do with being emotional about your feelings about somebody. You know, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's the big difference, right? And you know, they um, though this book does not include bisexual guys. I have done interviews with bisexual guys, and that may be a later book. Uh, but bisexual guys. Ob- obviously sort of recall these kinds of fantasies towards girls and boys. Mm -hmm. So they have, which can be even more confusing, but I think for the gay guys, they just, they, they knew something. Now, whenever they would have these feelings that they wanted to always be with their best buddy, of course, family would say, well, yeah, boys will be boys. They can have fun together. Um, You know, all boys have boyfriends. Exactly, yeah. But it was different for these guys. You know, like when a guy moved away, they were crushed. They were devastated um, by the removal of this very important person in their lives. Yeah, yeah. Not being able to put put your your hand on what exactly all this is must be scary, too. Mm-hmm. Now, you know what else surprised me about this book? That you still found that most parents don't teach boys about sexuality. They don't give them any information. Why is that still happening, Rich? Mm-hmm. We have to remember that these are, for the most part, fairly highly educated parents. And it is very striking to me, and I can, and this is not just with with gay boys, but youth of all sexes and all sexual orientations, is that parents simply do not talk to their child about sexuality, except in the most general way or when it's way too late, um, sort of... um, that the kid has already sort of gone beyond what the parent is trying to say. I think parents just don't do that. They are really not in tune that this is a parental obligation. So then they say, well, the school will do it. But the school doesn't always do it. Bad situation. They they teach abstinence. Right. They they don't teach anything about... And clearly, very few sex education classes teach anything at all about gay sexuality. So that if anything is presented, it's always within a heterosexual context. Uh, so I think that the gay guys just sort of say, okay, where else am I going to be educated? Well, you, you bring it up in your book how they get educated. A lot of them are being educated by pornography, which they find online now much easier than the early days. That's right. And every one of the guys has watched porn. And nearly everyone began at a very early age, right around pubertal onset. And it was very, very positive for them, which I think is not something we'd like to think about porn as being a positive element. But it was for them a way in which they could understand their sexuality. They could notice that they were watching the guys, not the girls in the porn. Or they could understand, oh, this is what it's all about. Um, so they were able to get rid of stereotypes. Now, they, they recognized that, of course, this is not sort of real sex, you know, in the sense that they wanted. And everybody doesn't look like these buff guys. <laughs> That's right. They know that those bodies are distorted and and so forth. So some felt like maybe they were watching too much porn. And so that was the negative, mm. that, that some began to feel like, well, maybe I'm becoming more obsessed with porn than I should be. So I, it's not all positive. Yeah, exactly. I think there's clearly some negative elements. You know, they didn't see the emotional, romantic connection between the actors in the porn. Yeah. But it was extraordinarily valuable for them as an educational tool. Now, I'm not so sure that if I were to tell a group of parents by the way, porn is taking over your responsibility <laughs> as parents that they would be very happy with that. But that is reality uh, for these gay youth, and I'm going to generalize that and say that's probably true for straight boys and, and girls as oh, well. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure of it. God. Now, now you, you found that in spite of this porn education, 
that a lot of these boys really did want emotional ties with people they were having sex with, like the stereotype that especially mm-hmm. boys just want to go out and be promiscuous. Right. But they really wanted emotional connections. That w- was interesting to me. Yes, I think this is something that, unfortunately, gay culture has has been a part of, is emphasizing the, the sexual part of gayness. And I think for these guys, if you were to ask them, you know, gave them a forced choice, would you rather have a soulmate you know, the, the, the guy of your life, the guy that you're going to marry, the guy that you're going to grow old with and so forth, or hookups, sexual hookups, they would almost all choose having that romantic guy. Now, not all believed that, that that was best for them or that they could ever find such a guy, but they were far more enamored, if you will, with finding a boyfriend. And, and some of the guys just simply said, hey, I'm, you know, it's like the hookup sex is a tryout. You know, I'm trying to find the guy of my dreams, and they didn't know where else to search, and so they thought somehow um, the apps were the right way of um, of finding such a guy. Yeah, yeah. But they wanted romance. Yeah. They really wanted romance, and that was that's what sparked their um, their eyes, and they um, and they would talk at great length about their desires to find such a guy. That's amazing to me because I mean I, I come from a generation before that, and and a lot of the guys I knew didn't want to get married. They didn't mm. want to be anything like straight people, and you know, let's party. Mm. So I. Found that really interesting. Right. Now, one thing that I found missing in this book that that absolutely flabbergasted me was that you didn't talk about the worry about AIDS or HIV right. very much in this book. Is is that not a a part of gay youth anymore? It's gone. For better or for worse, because of the way that they understand AIDS as a chronic disease and that it's not something they're going to die from, they believe, and they are now able to take various kinds of medications which are, you know, which prevent it. If it does happen, then it sort of does the medical thing. But it's clear that they um, are not nearly as concerned with it, and they don't really quite get it. The, they don't understand um, what our generation went through with the AIDS crisis. They understand it sort of intellectually, but not nearly as much as maybe they should. If you're just joining us, my guest is Rich Seven Williams. We're talking about his new book, Becoming Who I Am, Young Men on Being Gay. Now, let's continue that conversation about AIDS. Are, are young men encouraged to use condoms, like was emphasized greatly after the mm-hmm. advent of the AIDS epidemic, even after the cocktails were invented? I think that the vast majority of them, when I asked or probed, would say, oh, yeah, it's safer sex, of course. Mm. I mean, it was not even an issue of of a debate for them. It's not to say that they were always 100% successful. Oh, of course not. Yeah. But on the other hand, the message has clearly got through to them. But I don't think it's so much AIDS that they're worrying about. It's more with STDs or sexual infections of various sorts. Mm-hmm. I think that is the kind of thing, and I'm not saying that HIV isn't one of those, but I'm just saying they don't worry about the big picture here. They're more concerned with, with some of the more, what they consider to be the irritating aspects of of having lots of sex. Yeah. Um, and some of them do have. Some of these guys are very into sex, and some of them have a lot of it. But I think that the vast majority just don't see that's the that's what they're all about is to having as many hookups as possible. Yeah, that's that that really is a, a difference as far as I can tell. Now, now coming out stories in the past generations, you know, often traumatic, involving abuse, parents kicking kids out. You didn't find that hardly ever in this book, at least. Did, did you meet any negative stories? Um, I certainly did find a number of the guys who felt like they went through sort of a rough period during middle school. That seemed to be the more difficult time period for them, where they did not see other gay kids in their school, in their middle school, and perhaps they were um, teased or bullied, um, more so if they were what we call in the field sort of gender atypical, that is, more feminine than masculine. Those were the guys who got a lot of hassle, but then it was not about sexuality. It was about their gender expression. Mm-hmm. So even straight guys who are not masculine enough got the same kind of bullying that a gay guy would get. So it wasn't a matter of sexuality. Um, so they, a number of them had some rough time there, but in almost every high school that they went to, they did not receive that level of bullying, and they didn't see other gay kids either receive it, because by that point, most of their peers were really okay. 
uh, with gender and sexual diversity. And most of the kids just sort of said, no, this is not what we do. And for some, if they did receive it, they had straight allies who would actually defend them and say, hey, let's stop that kind of language. So I think the kind of abuse that we think is routine that forces kids out of the home to homelessness and all sorts of things, I'm not saying it doesn't occur. Yeah, yeah. It certainly does occur for way too many kids. But I think that to believe that that is the majority experience of kids growing up today gay is just wrong. Um, maybe there's 10%. God, that's amazing to me. Mm-hmm. Now, how, what do you attribute this to as a, as a psychologist? Do you, do you think it's because there are positive characters on TV and the gay marriage thing has happened? Mm-hmm. Why change the whole culture? It seems like it did. And it happened in a very short period of time. And I think that there have been a lot of people who have speculated about what happened. I certainly think the AIDS crisis was a major um, issue which sort of sensitized people to the humanity of, of gay, lesbian, bisexual people. But I think that the media played a really critical factor here in portraying gayness as an acceptable, fun, diverse kind of an expression. And I think that as these things began to roll one on top of the other as singers, TV shows, movies, every, and then people started coming out and some of these people were very high esteemed. And I think it just sort of step by step by step. And of course, we can't ignore some of the major issues, I think maybe beginning with Bill Clinton as president, when he began appointing out gay people in his administration and eliminating gays in the military um, ban. And I think that these kinds of events just kept piling on, kept piling on. And I think that the, the political action of gay adults was just absolutely important and there are just so many heroes around yeah. who really we, pushed we, we have to remember though I mean Bill Clinton did appoint a lot of gay people but he also enacted don't ask don't tell so there was a mixed bag but it was the beginning mm-hmm. of of role models in, in many ways in right. important jobs and and then Glee and, you know, all these, <laughs> these shows that started. It's, it's, it's amazing to me how, right. how many positive characters that getting away from the stereotypes. You know? Yes, it, it, was, it began to see, we began to see gay people as um, almost like heroes, as very positive characteristics. And there's just a, a new article that is out that I find fascinating in which the author argues that there's actually gay capital, that it's actually an advantage to be gay and that um, you can actually gain extra prestige or extra friends, that there are people out there who want a gay friend (laughs) um, because it adds something to their life or contributes in some ways, whatever. Gives people a new perspective. Exactly. But who would have ever thought growing up, for me, in my generation, that this would have been something that would have been desirable to have a gay friend. You know, you you didn't talk that much about the fact that marriage is available. I mean, when I was growing up in the gay communities mm-hmm. in San Francisco and stuff, nobody wanted. Mm-hmm. I mean, most people didn't want to deal with marriage. Mm-hmm. We want to be unique. We want to have our own creative lives. We don't want to mm-hmm. be like straight people. How, how has gay marriage changed? Mm-hmm. Or is it just like the norm now? Nearly all of these guys wanted a husband. They saw their lives eventually as um, leading to that kind of a relationship. Now, some wanted multiple husbands (laughs) or some wanted different kinds of rules of of what marriage might be, but they didn't want it to be deceitful. They wanted to be very upfront, very honest about um, what it is that they wanted and what the relationship should be. But they now... I mean, this is, you know, almost, you know, causes me to cry. They now (laughs) just simply assume marriage, which, you know, there's a part of me that goes, wait, just a minute now. This is a new privilege. But another part of me says, I am so happy that you can just make this assumption. Now, do we know that will always be there? Well, the skeptical person in me always wonders, you know, will it be a guarantee? But I think we've advanced so far. I mean, who could have imagined 60% plus of American people you know, that want are in favor of gay marriage. Yeah, this is remarkable. Absolutely or same-sex remarkable. marriage, I should did, say. Do, do you did, do you find though that some of these gay youth aren't as colorful and aren't as you know flamboyant? Obviously, probably most of them. But then mm-hmm. there was something fun and free about the, the pre-AIDS, mm-hmm. of course. That, that seems that, that, that everybody's conforming now and, you know, mm-hmm. doesn't look as fun as it used to. <laughs> well, I think the difference is our spotlight. Mm-hmm. I think that those kids still exist. 
But I think that that in the past was the only spotlight that we had on gay youth, were those who were sort of say, shine it on me, shine it on me. And now we have this whole other huge cohort of youth who don't want the spotlight. Um, in some ways, what they say is, no, I, I don't want to march in gay prides, um, oh, yeah. you know, those kinds of things. Um, and what they've done is basically to make their sexual orientation, their sexual identity, just another aspect of themselves. So they've really done a great job of integrating, synthesizing their sexuality into their personal identity. So it's not a big deal in the sense that it was for previous generations where um, a young person might say, this is what I am, I'm gay. And you knew almost nothing else about yeah, his or yeah, her life. Yeah. And I, I remember people, you know, toward the end of when the AIDS epidemic, when people, the cocktails started coming out and people started living through this, that people were saying they, they, were, they were sick of living in ghettos. You know, in San Francisco, they, they had mm -hmm. Castro Street <laughs> in a few places, and then you'd have to go act straight in the, in the rest of the city, <laughs> you know? So, right. so now the whole world belongs to, to all of us, more so, it seems. Mm -hmm. I think so. It was significant to me when I asked them a series of questions that revolved around their involvement in gay activities. And at first I was somewhat disappointed that they weren't more involved, mm. you know, that they weren't protesting, that they didn't go to the resource center, they didn't go to the gay groups on campus. Um, and it almost as if gay, their gayness disappeared. But then I began to realize, well, isn't this sort of what we've been working for mm -hmm. for so many years? Mm -hmm. Now, not all would agree with that. There are those who say we should not, you know, sort of accommodate and become just like a straight person. Yeah, yeah. But the reality is most of these guys do want to be normal in the sense of the world in which we, we live in. They don't want to be outside. Yeah, and they don't want to stand out and be pointed at and... Yeah, right. In fact, really some of them had some very harsh words for those of their peers that they saw um, who, who made their gayness everything about themselves. And I did interview some of those, mm -hmm. those guys. I mean, they're not absent from my guys, but it's very clear that they were in a very distinct minority in, in, um, in terms of the world in which most of these guys inhabited. And I think that's Where important. Where were most of these guys from, anyway? What was the demographic? Is, is it New York, around the country? Where? Um, around the country. They're, they're not all just Cornell students by any means. I interviewed a number of people who um, were from another college, some distance from here, who had a very totally different kind of a demographic than Cornell students. Um, and clearly, this is not a representative sample. I'm not saying that at yeah, all. Yeah. But I did not recruit them from gay organizations. Mm. Rather, they were just part of a, of a larger study on sexuality and personality. And so the idea here was that I would just get guys who, you know, wanted to make 20 bucks for the study and then talk say, oh, by the way, if you want to talk to me about, um, you know, your, your sexual and romantic life, I'd love to talk to you about it. Wow, that's, that's, that's more interesting to me. I was thinking that you maybe put up leaflets and found just certain types who would want to do this. So, so what did you find are the obstacles? Why should some of these guys be activists and out there and marching? What, what, what's, what's still left to do? Well, I think that, that there is still a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of our willingness to accept that this is a lifelong um, development. That is, that this is present very early on. I think there still needs to be um, the kind of support and social service agencies for kids who are having trouble. Um, I think some of that trouble is related to their sexuality, some is not. But I think that they have a very unique um, part of their lives that needs addressing that um, maybe our regular social services are not being are not addressing. So I do think we have to be very concerned about that 5, 10, 15 percent who are not doing well, who are being bullied, who, who are homeless. There's still a lot of kids who are suicidal as well. Yes, yes. Yeah. And I think that to characterize gay youth as suicidal I think is wrong. Yeah. Not only is it wrong statistically, but it's also the wrong message to give. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that we forget about the kids who are and that we pay attention to them and try to make whatever services are possible, clinical or public health, to help them lead good, solid lives. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we still need to do that. 
we can't give that part up, even as we welcome gay youth into all aspects of our lives. So, so you, you, when, when you finished this book, you must have had this great feeling that the change has been positive rather than regressive, right? I mean, really. Now I'm out of a job, you see, <laughs> because everything I've been working for um, or really wanting to push, that is to put, sort of, if you will, gain us back into our normal lives, both politically and social and interpersonally, yeah. it's occurring. It's occurring long before I ever imagined, but I'm thrilled that it is occurring. Well, Rich Seven Williams, we're almost out of time. Do you have any contact information in case anybody wants to get in touch or talk to you about the book? Or? Well, certainly if you want to email me, you just do my last name, Savin, with a hyphen, Williams, at cornell.edu, and I respond to every email. So That's great. Well, Rich Seven Williams, thank you so much for joining us. Again, I've been talking to Rich Seven Williams, a clinical psychologist and a professor emeritus in developmental psychology at Cornell University. We've been discussing his latest book, Becoming Who I Am, Young Men on being gay. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Our audio producer is Nate Richardson at Rep Studio in Ithaca, New York. Our theme music was composed by Diego Vega, and we are a sponsored project of the New York Foundation for the Arts. Tax-deductible donations are welcome at artspire.org. That's A-R-T-S-P-I-R-E dot org. And visit us online at outofboundsradioshow.com. I'm Tish Perlman. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening to Blooming Out. Our episode today featured two pieces from Out of Bounds, produced by Tish Perlman in Ithaca, New York. The episode will be available online at wfhb.org. Blooming Out's executive producer is Wes Martin. Our producer is Ryan Shaddy. Our social media coordinator is Josephine Douglas. Our news director is Olivia Davidson. Our assistant producer and music curator is Grace Thumser. The Blooming Out theme music is an original composition from Aaron Gage. For WFHB and Blooming Out, I'm Jesse Grubb. Thank you for listening to volunteer-powered, community-supported WFHB. Stay tuned for Making Contact. Blooming Out. Indiana's only LGBTQ plus radio program airs every Thursday evening here on WFHB at 5.30 p.m. You can also stream us 24 hours a day, seven days a week on WFHB.org or BloomingOut.com. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week to Blooming Out. Blooming Out.